First Timothy chapter 5. Continuing our series called Surrounded. In his classic novel, Anna Karenina, Leo Tolstoy opens his book, Happy Families Are All Alike. Every unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. It's one of the classic opening lines in all of literature and one that accurately describes, I believe, most churches too. Uh, you can see as you go throughout the New Testament and you read all of these different letters to, uh, that Paul writes to these different churches from, from Thessalonians to Corinthians to uh, this letter here to Timothy and the church in Ephesus. What you can see as you go throughout this is that the majority of letters written to churches in the New Testament are written to solve problems. Uh, the, the, the letters are written to, to kind of answer and respond to some problems that are happening, some things that are happening in those churches. And Paul is giving like theological guidance to very specific problems. And what you see is every letter kind of takes on a different feel. Every letter kind of takes on a different uh, approach. Philippians is known as the letter of joy because there are minor corrections that Paul has to make there. They are generally a happy church in Philippi, but the, the, the letter to 1 Corinthians is full of rebukes and full of threats for Paul to say, don't make me come down there, basically is, is what he says and what he carries out. Every church is, <clears throat> is unhappy or at least dysfunctional in its own way. And there's no reason that we shouldn't expect that that carries on all the way into today. If a church that the Apostle Paul planted and that Timothy now pastors has its problems, then we should expect the same thing would play out in our churches, uh, our churches today. And so what we're going to do is we're going to cover chapter 5 where Paul kind of gets into some problems that are happening in Ephesus. He's not super clear. Again, we're getting one half of the phone call, so we got some weird stuff to work through whenever we go through chapter 5 here. Uh, and, and what we'll do is we're going to cover all of chapter 5 this week, and we're going to cover all of chapter 6 next week. And here's the problem for me, the preacher, as we go through these different texts. If I'm just, just brutally honest, these two chapters are not good for preaching. They're just not real good to stand up here and say, here's what all is happening here. They're a bit all over the place. They deal with problems that are very specific to what's going on in Ephesus. Uh, and on top of that, Paul kind of just stacks instruction on top of instruction uh, that's not really related in, in, all, in, in very many ways. So it's just kind of like Paul saying, oh yeah, deal with this. Oh yeah, deal with this. Don't forget to deal with this. Here's what you need to do about this. And these are all just kind of a hodgepodge of different things that he, uh, that he covers. And so it doesn't really lend itself to a, uh, a normal sermon where we work through an argument that Paul is making or work through a story or a narrative uh, that is there. So my goal is to kind of, in these two chapters, pick up on some general themes and uh, maybe in a spot or two we'll try to work through what Paul is talking about, but we probably won't get into the nitty-gritty of many of these verses here in uh, chapters 5 and chapters 6, because I'll be honest with you, if we decide to get into the, the details and the minutiae of each of these two chapters, one, we're, we're going to go well past Christmas in this sermon series, and two, 
I think most of you guys will probably catch up on your sleep in these sermons if we were to, if we were to approach it like that. Um, because it's just such uh, kind of small things that Paul deals with. And so what we're going to do is we're going to take it in big chunks and kind of work through some things. It may mean that we don't deal with every little thing that pops up or every little nuance of the text. Some of you might get really frustrated about that and, and be like, ah, I wanted to know what, what he said about this. But that's not necessarily how this one's going to work the next couple of weeks. So we're in this series surrounded and asking the question, what do we do when we're surrounded by a culture that looks, thinks, and acts very different than we do? This should probably be a pretty familiar position for the church as the church should generally think, act, and look very different than the culture throughout history. Unfortunately, this doesn't feel quite as relevant as it probably should because the church has gotten really good at acting, thinking, and looking just like the culture, just with a little bit of Jesus sprinkled in. We look and we, we, we value the same things, we approach our problems the same way, we hold grudges in the same, uh, the same way, we, we don't approach it with a gospel lens, we approach it with a, uh, a kingdom now kind of a lens, and then we say, Jesus, will you bless this kingdom that we've built here? Which is exactly how the world approaches things. And so, so this type of text feels a little unfamiliar to us because we already know what we should value and kind of how we should handle things. But Paul's saying, no, 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 no. you got to do this differently. you got to view it differently. you got to think differently. The, the, the implications for how you think then will make you look very different. And this is what he's trying to lay out in 1 Timothy. And last week we summarized most of chapter 4 as Paul's instruction for, for how to live when you're surrounded. And his big strategy was go to church. Go to church. Specifically a good church, a church that loves the gospel, but his big strategy for how to live in a world that is set against him is go to church. So last week we said go to church, this week his instruction is be the church. Be the church. Specifically be the church to those that are a part of the church, which is not something that we really talk about all that often. But it's an important thing that Paul lays out here because what he's going to say is the way that you treat each other is a reflection of what you really believe about Jesus and what you believe about the gospel. It's probably not the grand strategy that you would create, that I would create. Go to church and then be the church, but it's, it's not hard to see why this is important to Paul whenever we get into this and we start talking about uh, these things. So let's begin at the, at, right here at the very beginning of chapter 5 and just see where, where all it takes us. So 1 Timothy chapter 5 verse 1. Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father, younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters, in all purity. So we'll stop right there because he'll make a shift in, the, in verse 3. Paul is trying to instruct Timothy on how to work within the, with the, the various different groups, the various different people within the church. And his metaphor of choice here is a family. He uses all kinds of different metaphors to talk about the church and to talk about uh, the way that the church exists, from, from, from a bride to uh, a body to just all kinds of different things. But here the metaphor of choice is a family. He doesn't want Timothy to see his church members as cogs in an organization, as volunteers to plug in in order to make sure child care is covered, as, 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 as people who show up and trying to figure out how do we plug holes in all these things that we've got going on. He doesn't want Timothy to see them uh, like that, he doesn't even want to see them as, as members in a club. 
but instead he wants to see them as family, that they would honor each, that they, they, they would pay the honor due to each one just like that in a family. Paul wants Timothy and us to see what it means to be a church, that we should feel like family, both in our, our honor to one another, the way we, 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 we look at each other, the way we converse with one another, the way we approach each other. We should feel like family, and we should especially feel like family in our commitment and our care for one another. And so he's going to labor to make this point uh, with one very specific issue here in chapter 5 that I think we can probably apply in some different ways. But for us, we need to take this metaphor and see what Paul is talking about and kind of work through that just a little bit. What we do here on Sundays, whenever we gather here, whenever we, 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 when we gather here on Sundays, when we uh, have our front porch groups and we sit down in each other's homes and we share a meal, whenever we pray over one another, when we celebrate with one another, when we weep together, when we work together, when we hold each other accountable, when we do all these things We are so much more than a group of people that get together on a Sunday morning and sit and listen to a lecture and some music. We are so much more than that. We are a family. And that is the way the church is designed to work. Good and bad. Agree and disagree. In season and out. That bond is powerful. And it should be one that is palpable to us. It should be one that is almost tangible to us, that we can feel that whenever we walk into a place like this. That bond is what makes us and what separates us from these other people and these other organizations. In, 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 in Paul's case, uh, in Timothy's case, it's what separates them from the worship of Artemis and all that's going on in the temple of Ephesus. We are not showing up in order to appease a God. We are showing up because we are family united by the blood of Christ. And Paul wants us to make sure that we don't, we don't diminish that and turn it into something where it's just something that we do because we're supposed to do it. Paul is telling Timothy that that part of how that bond plays out will be in how we treat each other, how we talk to one another, how we honor one another, and that Timothy should be the leader and example of that as their pastor. With honor and respect, we, 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 we live our lives towards one another, and that is what marks us. Not looking to prey on others, not looking to, to simply use others. Because after all, that is the basis for almost every relationship outside of family and outside of the church. What can I get from you? If I can get something from you, then we're going to be friends. If you, can, if you can give me nothing, then I have no space for you. But what Paul is saying is that's not how it works in a family, and that's not how it works in the church. Your first motive is caring and showing honor, not what can I take from you and what can I get from you. For far too long, the church has been seen as kind of an add-on for good people to do. It's a thing, not a people. But that's not how it's meant to work. If you show up here on Sunday mornings, if you listen to the sermons, if you sing the songs and do what we do here on Sunday mornings, you will probably get something out of it for a time. I don't want to neglect the power of God's Word. But the reality is that that it will be a very small something compared to what is truly waiting for you if you see the church as a family. Let me, let me give you a, a bad analogy. Let me give you a really bad analogy. I remember uh, uh, several years back, this would have been probably 10 years ago, I remember going to a Chick-fil-A 
uh, out in West Knoxville, uh, out on Kingston Pike. I walked into a Chick-fil-A. It was 11.30 on a Tuesday morning. I did not know that was the universal time and place for a play date. But evidently it was, because when I walked in there, there were kids everywhere. There were kids all over the place, and there were moms everywhere. They were all over the place. Kids were running into me. They were playing on the playground. They were sitting at the tables and eating. Moms were talking, not paying attention to the kids and what they were throwing all over the place. It was, it was all of that at a Chick-fil-A. I went in there and I saw what was happening. I, I watched how they were, they were talking to one another, how they were uh, laughing, how they were hanging out, how they were interacting with each other's children, how they were talking about what was going on in each other's uh, lives there. And there was just this incredible sense of chaos, but also incredible sense of community all wrapped up into one. I just wanted my spicy chicken sandwich and my waffle fries, and then I needed to get out of there. And so I got my food, and then I left. Was my food good? It was. It was good. I enjoyed my sandwich. I enjoyed the food that I got there. But I couldn't help but walk out of there and realize that even though we were in the same place, I was having a very different experience than the others that were in the same place. Why? Because I just came in there to consume. I just came in there to get something and to go. The other people that were in there came in order to have community and to be with one another. I wasn't part of the team. I wasn't part of the family on that morning. And for so many in the American church culture, that is the experience that they have with church. Grab and go and get just enough of the experience to consume it and be satisfied for about seven more days. And then you go on about your week. If you can make it curbside, even better. Online, that's even better. You don't even have to get out of your pajamas. It's, it, we, we have turned church into a commodity to be consumed, no different than a sandwich from Chick-fil-A. But the picture that Paul gives us is that we are not here to consume. We are here to pay honor and to care for one another. And Paul wants to make sure that Timothy is doing all he can to create that kind of community that makes a family, and everyone can be a part. For many in this church in Ephesus, the church would have been the only family that they had. Some may have been shunned for converting to Christianity. Some may have been in Ephesus against their will, either as slaves or because that was the only place that they could find a, a place to live or a place to work, and they would have been alone. They would have been uh, without their families, they would not have had the, the support. And let's remember, at this time, there's no social security, there's no social network to catch them, there's no police force to protect them. The way that, that, that people were cared for in that system was with family. And so many would have been completely exposed and without that level of support. So Paul says, this is how you treat one another. And this is what leads Paul, I think, into his next point here. I'm going to read 3 through 16. Big chunk here in 1 Timothy chapter 5. Uh, but it's all dealing with one point, all right? So 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 3. Honor widows who are truly widows. Which just sounds like a terribly offensive statement to say, I'll be honest with you. Who are truly widows. But he'll show you why he says it that way here in just a second. But if a widow has children or grandchildren... 
Let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. She who is truly a widow, left all alone, has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. But she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. Command these things as well, so that they may be without reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his own household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Let a widow be enrolled if she, is not, if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been with the wife of one husband and having a reputation for good works. If she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work. But refuse to enroll younger widows, for when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry, and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Besides that, they learn to be idlers, going about from house to house, and not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies, saying what they should not. So I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander, for some have already strayed after Satan. If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened, so that it may care for those who are truly widows. Holy moly. That is a lot. Paul lays out all kinds of stuff there, and he gives some commands that seem to be even contradictory within the span of just like two verses. He covers a lot of ground, and just honestly, it sounds really offensive when you read through it, talking about truly widows, and they've got to qualify in certain ways in order to receive support from the church. What is it that Paul is doing? Um, You know, truly widows, this doesn't seem like this one doesn't seem like this is a hard one to like, figure out if they're truly widows or not, right? Did their husband die or not? Check the box. Okay, they're truly widows. That's how that works. This is kind of a, a pretty simple binary state. Yes or no, they are widows. But what Paul is calling into question whenever he says a true widow's status uh, and, and what he's doing here is he's trying to make the point that, that it's not whether or not their husband has died or not, The issue is, do they have support somewhere or not? Are they truly widows in the sense that, not that they've lost a spouse, but that they've lost everything. Not that they are, they've they've lost a husband, but that they have no, no prospect of any of that changing. They have no family to care for them. They have no one else around them. He's concerned, he's got two concerns, two concerns that he kind of lays out here. First, his concern is that the widows be cared for. Second is that he's concerned that the church be discerning about what that looks like. Paul is, is, is simply trying to give Timothy some standard advice about what to do with this potential problem in Ephesus. And before we get too deep into the advice, and, uh, it's, good for us, it's good for us to note exactly what I said at the beginning, that every church is unique in its setting, in its membership, in its gifting, and in its troubles. We would do well to, to kind of listen to what Paul has to say here uh, and, and to kind of recognize that this is part and parcel of a group of people that are together. Paul himself planted this church and he's having to deal with problems within this church. And I can tell you that if Paul himself had to deal with problems within a church that he planted, then certainly we too will have problems. 
the Bible teaches us that, that problems within the church, that trying to work through logistics in the church, are not things that, 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 that signify that something has gone wrong in the church. They're things that signify the church is, is trying to do what they need to do. And you're going to have to have some wisdom and discernment. How do we work this out and what does it look like? There's a level of discernment and humility that's required in that. I've talked to so many people who, who would show up at a church. They would show up here for six months or a year. We've got our 101 class that will be this evening, and people will, will join and be so excited, and then they're here for six months, they're here for a year, and they're like, oh, wait a minute, I didn't know that, I, I, I didn't know that you guys were, you know, had these issues, or logistically you were struggling with this, or whatever, and it's not like we're hiding any problems, it's just that things come up. And then people are like, oh, no, 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 that for me, yeah, I, I want to find a church that's not dealing with that kind of stuff. I left a church that was dealing with that kind of stuff. Okay, well, let's talk about what the stuff is and why the stuff is there. Because if you're looking for a church that has no problems, you're just going to keep bouncing around. And all you have to do is look hard enough and you're going to find where that happens and where that is. It's just the nature of a group of sinners that, that are together. That will happen. And Paul wants to make sure that, that, that when those things come, he gives us a model for some discernment and some policies that get put in place here with these widows. Paul wants to make sure the widows are cared for. But before he just kind of turns them over to the deacons of the church and says, go and provide for them, he tells Timothy they need to make sure that these women are really at the level that is as bad as it sounds. That they're not just trying to milk the church for what can be given to them. That they're not just trying to kind of say, hey, I'm here, give me whatever is here. But instead that they also have some responsibility in how, <clears throat> in how they act and how they live. And Paul says the first thing that needs to happen is that the immediate family should step up and meet the need, not the church. The first thing that should happen is that the immediate family should step up and care for these widows. They are the first line of care, not the church. Additionally, the conduct of these women comes into uh, to play as well. Were they truly members of the church? Had they established themselves as part of the, the church family? If so, Paul has a plan for them. But he calls on the family first to step in and care for them. He goes on to say, if someone has family, but that family will not provide for them, that person is actively working against the teachings of Christ. It is tantamount to denying the faith, is what Paul says there. To turn your back on members of your own household, your immediate family, that are truly in need. So he says, you need to step up and you need to care. You need to do these things. The picture here is one that is, is, that is truly in need. And then the family members have... have have not only not met the need, they have actively turned their back on the other person. And Paul says that this is devastating to their testimony as followers of Jesus. And this is not how they should act. So they go, he goes on to give some very specific application of all of these rules, and it gets super confusing because in one, one part of the passage, he says, he talks about remarriage uh, being a bad thing. Uh, and then two verses later, he's encouraging them to get married. And it's like, what is it, Paul? Should they get married? Should they not get married? What are the rules that you're actually trying to lay down? Which is it? Well, I think what Paul is doing here, I think it depends on what you're after when you get married. 
I think that's the point that Paul is trying to make. Paul laments in verse 11 how some will take off for a new man when given the chance. Likely, the reason for this is because the husband uh, would not have been a Christian, and these young widows were, were really just trying to make a play for convenience. They were trying to figure out a way just to, 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 to find a man who would provide for them. They need somebody to take care of them, so they'll marry anyone that will sign up. And Paul says, if that's what they're doing, let them go. That's not how you behave in the life of the church. Let them go. If they're going to chase after money and security, then they are trusting in the wrong things. Timothy, let them go. But if there are women who are not married, widows that are older, that cannot work and care for themselves, if you have women truly in need, then not only is it okay for you to help them, Timothy, you must help them and meet that need, lest you also be called worse than an unbeliever, because after all, we are family. And that is the job of the family, to meet the needs of those who are there. That's the picture here. The church doesn't leave anyone behind. We meet the needs of those who are truly in need. In Ephesus, the widows seem to be the ones that are driving that need. But here, it could be all kinds of different things. At every church, that I think will look a little bit different. I don't think the application of this is we need to set up a widow outreach program. I don't think that is the application for us here. Or even that we need to have a program ready for, for when we have widows here in the church. That's not the application. The point is when someone within the family has need, then you need to be wise and discerning in how you meet that need, but you need to make sure that the need gets met. You need to make sure that you care for those that are part of the family. So the way you do that is you honor both the teachings of Christ, the church as a family, by caring for them. And note too, this is coming from within the church. This is not an outreach program that Paul is trying to say, this is what needs to get set up. There are other places where he talks about how to care for those outside the church, but all of chapter 5 is all about what happens inside the church, because he's talking about family here. He's not, talk, he's not even necessarily talking about evangelism, he's just talking about how to care for the congregation and its needs. So let's read through the rest of chapter 5 together here. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 17. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. Amen? Right? No? All right. Uh, do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses, as for those who persist in sin. Rebuke them in the presence of all, so that they may, they may stand in fear. In the presence of God and Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part of the, in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. The sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment. But the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous. And even those that are not cannot remain hidden. So, huge chapter covers all kinds of stuff there. But now that we've read that, I think it's a good time for us to talk about the budget here at the church, right? Yeah, yeah no, I'm just kidding. 
we, we are not going to talk about uh, the, the budget or wages or anything like that. Uh, I think what Paul is doing here, I think what Paul is trying to do is it's the same general idea. He has switched subjects. He's no longer talking about widows. He's talking about elders and kind of the, the livelihood and the life of the church. But he's trying to make sure that this little church has its house in order. And he wants to communicate to this church that there is a responsibility to those that they care for those who are their leaders. The responsibility is threefold to these leaders. One, that they honor them. Two, that they provide for them. And three, that they hold them accountable. Three things that they have a responsibility, that, that the church family has a responsibility to their elders. We know from Paul's other letters that a common refrain amongst these new churches was that these elders, specifically the ones who labor in preaching and teaching, should not be asking for payment. They were accused of chasing money and that if they took the money, they could not be trusted. It's not hard to see how this works. I mean, that, that's actually kind of a reasonable thing for a lot of churches to be wary of. We all know this problem uh, even today. Pastors and preachers that live, act, and dress like celebrities. That crave status and a huge paycheck that goes with it. And what these churches were, were fearful of is that as the, the, the church got started, that those that would serve as elders would begin to serve as elders for the simple, especially those that were preaching, for the simple fact that it provided a paycheck. And Paul wants to make it clear that even though that potential sin is there and that potential problem is there, it should not deter the church. And since it's hard for Timothy to be the one to get up there and be like, hey, I think you guys should pay me, Paul does this on his behalf in this letter. And he says, don't be afraid to pay those who are standing up and preaching and teaching. And so that's the point that he's trying to make. He's not trying to say like there's a, like this, this, set, this level of salary that's needed. or try, He's just simply trying to say it's okay to pay the preacher. That's basically what he's trying to say and to pay the pastor. If you want them to labor on your behalf, then don't expect them to labor on your behalf unless you plan to pay them. The two things go together. He's looking out for the, the church family and the church that is there. But then he says, but with that honor and that paycheck, don't mistake it for being in a position that is above rebuke or accountability. Elders do not sit in a position that insulates them from sin or from accountability for that sin. It can be easy to assume that payment meant a status that he was untouchable. That payment meant that that person was, was, was kind of in a different class. As, as I've got friends that like to call themselves, just jokingly, that are pastors, professional Christians. And because they are professional Christians, that they somehow are different than everyone else. And this is the point that, it, that Paul's trying to make is, no, 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 sin is still there and you still have to hold these men accountable. Paycheck doesn't change that fact. And so Paul explicitly rejects the idea that somehow these elders are in a different place and he, and, and, and he does this by, by kind of laying out what it looks like to hold them accountable. He puts the stipulation out there that there needs to be two to three witnesses for the level of accountability ability that is needed. Um, the reason for this, I think, is fairly obvious. Paul wants to protect the elders from those that would seek to undermine the church and the, and the mission of the church with false allegations. 
It's the same standard that is there for all of Israel in the Old Testament. So it's not like Paul is creating some sort of like second class for elders. It's the same standard that is already out there. Um, But I I think Paul is just trying to make it clear that there needs to be a good reason to bring a charge against an elder. But if that charge has any merit, then the pastor needs to be held to account for it. Just as a side note, I I think we need to address this. Uh, There there is a, a strand of thinking and kind of an argument that is out there in which this idea that you have to have two or three witnesses in order to bring a charge against uh, uh, against an elder or against a pastor, that there is a strand of thinking that, that says that if someone has been accused of abuse, you need to have multiple people that, that come forward in order, or, or you can't go forward with any investigation or any charge. And let me just tell you, that is absolutely not a good application of this text. The way that this text is framed is it is saying there needs to be good, there needs to be allegations and there needs to be uh, some proof that is there. But if somebody were to come forward, at least here at Providence, with that, that charge of abuse, then they wouldn't say, well, if you got somebody else to back up your story, then we'll listen to you. What we will say is, all right then, we are going to do an investigation. We will bring in uh, outside help because we as a church, as elders, are not equipped to do the, the investigation that is needed. So we will do the investigation that is needed. And if there is evidence that backs this up that can be found when that investigation is done, then we will do the rest of what Paul lays out here. This is not an attempt to, to hide anything that Paul is putting forward. In fact, I think what it is, is it's an attempt to make sure that we get it right. And then when we do get it right, there's, there are things that need to follow after that. Why? Because public, accountabil- uh, because public accountability uh, for, for those that are in a public position of leadership, Paul sees as uh, not just important, but essential. Public accountability is better for the mission of the church than hiding things. That if we are publicly accountable as leaders for our sin, not in a sense of shaming, not in a sense of, uh, of anything else like that, but, but public accountability for sin does not... Okay, there's a whole other strand of, of thinking out there that says if a pastor is guilty of sin, is guilty of whether it's abuse or some other sin that for that pastor to then own up to that sin uh, publicly would detract from the message. Can you, and, and the thinking goes like this, can you imagine if the world found out about this that happened? Can you imagine, can you imagine the harm that would be caused to the church and to the name of Jesus if they found out that this happened? And so what happens is accountability moves from the public sphere into the private sphere, and typically what happens then is that accountability moves into a place where uh, it's kind of, you know what, it'll be all right. And we'll just kind of sweep this under the rug. We'll kind of put this behind the door. We'll kind of make sure that this doesn't get out. And then it's no accountability at all. And so what Paul says is that line of thinking is not only, not only does that not the right line of thinking, that is a potentially damaging and dangerous line of thinking. That the best way to, to, to be a church and a church family, if you're going to hold these guys accountable, they have to be accountable in a way where they can stand up in front and say, this is what has happened. And that that is actually better for the name and for the mission of the church. 
God's instruction is that hiding sin is what destroys a church, not accountability. And so he wants to make sure that with this position of honor also comes a position of accountability. And all of these things, Paul is interested in protecting, uh, protecting three things. The people of the church, the message of the church, and the mission of the church. This is what he lays out here in, in 1 Timothy chapter 5. That he wants to make sure that the people of the church are cared for. That the message of the church is protected from uh, accusations, both false ones and accountability whenever it is called for. And that the mission of the church goes forward and is not hindered by those who would otherwise bring it shame. How we treat each other, how we care for one another, how we honor one another, how we hold each other accountable are all aspects of our mission. So so don't mistake our mission simply for how many people did we baptize? How many people did we go out there and, and, and knock on their door? All of those things are good. Those things are important. But... Part of the mission is how we treat each other within these walls and within these doors as well. Part of the mission is how we hold each other accountable, how we, how we love one another and how we walk with one another in life. Part of our mission and part of our testimony is that we stand up and we say, we are the church of Jesus Christ. We are a family. We do care for one another and we make sure that we show each other honor. But we don't, we don't do it to the neglect of what is right and what is good. We're family. We're in this together. In every way, the beautiful and the celebrated ways, and even in the messy and painful ones, we continually strive to honor each other and to pursue the mission and to let our good works rule in our hearts and our actions. And he ends there talking about good works and talking about sin. And, and, and I think the point that he's making there at the, at the end of, of what we just read is that there's, there, there's conspicuous and inconspicuous. There's things that are seen. There's things that are unseen. But the reality is the sin will make itself known. You may have to give it time. It may have to fester. But the sin will make itself known. And the good works will too. All of that will come out at some point. There is no way that we can hide all of these things. And I think that's true whenever we're talking about leadership here, but I don't think it's just true when we're talking about leadership. I think it's talking about the nature of the church. How we care for one another, how we love one another, some of that will be hidden and no one will know the acts that are done in secret until we stand before God on judgment day. But give it time, give it long enough, and the true nature of the church will reveal itself. Are we truly a community, or are we just a bunch of people that like hanging out with each other? Are we truly a family united around Jesus Christ, or are we people just happen to be like at that Chick-fil-A, happen to be in the same stage of life, that happen to be dealing with the same kind of things, that happen to have kids that like each other, and so we're here, tonight, here today, gone tomorrow. Because the reality is what unites us, what makes us a family, is not because we have things in common, it's because we have Jesus Christ that we rely on. He is the one that makes us a family. He's the one that makes us brothers and sisters. And this is what unites us, and it's what should drive us. But if that's not what unites us, I think what 
Part of what Paul is saying here is that that will be revealed. That will be opened up. And whenever that is revealed and whenever that is opened up and the fractures begin to come and the the disunity begins to come, then what you're going to find is not that the good works is what carries us through as a church, but instead it becomes becomes the fractures that define us as a church. And for so many churches, that is their story. And it's my prayer and, and, and part of why we've built Providence the way that we've built it around community is that that our unity is not a manufactured and a false unity built on kind of false pretenses, but instead it is truly built around Jesus Christ. That we are not, we are not united here by age, by race, by gender. We're not united by any of those things, e- even by like, so, like socioeconomic status. We're not, we're not united by any of those things. What, we, what draws us here, each of us, every Sunday, what draws us into each other's homes is because we all count ourselves as forgiven. We all count ourselves as part of a family. That we all say that we're willing to to care for the other and to live on behalf of the other because that's what we have been called to do. And I think this is what Paul is getting at. For him, it's dealing with widows and, and how to care for the elders. For us, perhaps it's something different. The question I would have for you is, If you see someone in need in this congregation, whether that be a physical need or that be a spiritual emotional need, what is your response? How is it that you care for them? How is it that you weep with them and that you that you stand behind them, but beside them, that you put your arm around them, that you pray for them? Or are you one that kind of says, you know what? That's not what I came here for. I didn't know this church had, had people that were so messed up. I really just came here because I, I wanted to hear this preaching or I wanted to sing this song or I wanted to whatever. That's not the mark of a true church. And it's not the mark of the family. But that's exactly what we've been called to. And is it messy? Yes. Is it hard? Yes. I mean, this is why Paul spent so much time here in this chapter kind of laying this stuff out. It's why half of the New Testament was written, because it's messy and it's difficult. But it is the testimony of Jesus Christ to a watching world. How does the church care for each other? How do we love one another? How do we stand there with one another? If we do it well... I think this is, this is Jesus' prayer in John 17. If we do it well, the world will see it and will know it. But if we do it poorly, they will see that too. Will you pray with me? Father, this morning, it is our confession that for, for too many of us or, or maybe for all of us on some level, that we see church and we, we approach church and we pursue church primarily as consumers. We show up on Sunday thinking, what can we get instead of what can we give? That we do not live and we do not love as family. And Father, it is our confession that those things are true. And Father, I pray for corporate repentance that, that we would turn from that. And that we would seek to know you and that the, the more we know you, the more we follow you, that would draw us into to deeper relationships and community within the fellowship of providence.
Father, I pray for us even now as we sing these songs, as we stand to, to, to sing and to consider what it is that you have done on our behalf, that you will work to knit our hearts together, that where sin needs to be exposed, it would be exposed. That where accountability needs to happen, it would happen. But that in all of it, the name of Jesus would be honored. And it would be driven by love for one another and a love for the gospel. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.